Is it possible to make an anagram out of my name, Bill Bryson? Well, let's have a look. Let's take out the word lobby and see what's left. Oh, only one vowel left. <laughs> uh, let's try. Let's try brolly. You're used to the English brolly, aren't you? Uh, uh, uh. Brolly bins. Where you keep your umbrellas? Brolly bins. That's incredible. Can you try to see what you can make of mother tongue? Hmm, that looks a tough one. Well, we could say, uh, we could say, tour the gnome, I suppose. Tour the gnome. The gnome tour. The gnome tour. Gnome tour. So, hello. This is Brolly Bins presenting the gnome tour with a little help there from crossword puzzle expert and inveterate anagramist Roy Dean, from whom more later. If there is one thing about English that we can all be proud of, it is its remarkable affection for wordplay. There exist in English varieties of wordplay almost beyond counting. Puns, palindromes, tongue twisters, cryptograms, crossword puzzles, anagrams, rebuses, clarihues, you name it. Of course, every language in the world indulges in wordplay of some sort, but no speech group has invented more varieties or brought them to a higher level than those who speak English. And in this, I am happy to concede, the British are without peer. Can I do your nails, sir? <laughs> I've got another follower now, sir. He's a gunner. Oh, is he? I bet you make him come out of his shell. <laughs> oh, yes, sir. He says I'm a wicked little barrage. <laughs> hello, anybody there? Oh, hello, I'm Julian, and this is my friend Sandy. <laughs> yes. Come for fitting, have you? Yes, I've been sent up by the producer. I'm not surprised, Duncan. <laughs> Four candles. Four candles. Here you are. Four candles. No, four candles. Well, there you are, four candles. No, four candles. Handles for forks. It's not painting, it's passed on. This parrot is no more. It's ceased to be. It has expired. The parrot has gone to meet its maker. This is a late parrot. Why is it, I've long wondered, that the British are so good at this verbal dexterity? Is there something in the language that encourages a playful character... Or is it something in their character that makes them find playfulness in the language? I put the question to Tony Ogard, author of the Oxford Guide to Wordplay. This is a very nice thing about the, the British. I think particularly they do like to mess about with everything. They, they can't take things seriously. And they're given this, the wonderful serious English language, which is the greatest gift that could be given to any person. And what do they do with it? They start uh, turning the words back to front and making palindromes and they make up anagrams, they'll shuffle the letters around, they'll play with the sounds of the words, they'll play with the meanings of the words, they'll create games that you can play on television like Call My Bluff, which is a very old dictionary game. Mm -hmm. um, and they just won't be serious. And that, that, I think that's a, a wonderful characteristic. Mary Boke, Alan Corrin. As you know, I love doing Call My Bluff. I love it because I get to meet actors. 
the only problem is I can't shake their hands. I'm very uneasy about shaking their hands because there are so many veterinary series on television today. <laughs> when you reach out, you think, I know that, it's been up a cow quite recently. <laughs> and worst of all, you might run into someone who's been dealing with pigs because a merry balk is an ulcerous tumour inside the intestine of a pig. It's one of the great joys, of course, of English. I do this silly programme every day on television called My Bluff. Um, you can't do it in Germany. Really? No, that you can't do it in France. Why not? You can't, it's not a rich enough language. The academicians in France have cleaned the language out. So you don't have these enormously rich puns. But you don't have the OED. You don't have, the, the, you know, you don't have a million words. It's, uh, there are infinite possibilities, and so many of them sound funny. And in other languages, words don't really sound funny. I don't know what it is, but I know. I've re I tried reading, because my German's not bad, reading Woodhouse in German. And they translated, remember this very clearly, they translated ice formed on the butler's upper slopes, literally. And it doesn't work, because <laughs> it sounds like a mountain. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a man. It, it, it's simply the overtones of a language that is drawn on so much for so long and has so many words for everything. I mean, it's, it's part of the nature of uh, England to produce synonyms. I mean, I studied Anglo-Saxon, and it was a simple culture. They didn't talk about much. They talked about swords and the sea and death. But they had 90 words for sword and 200 words for the sea and 1,000 words for death. One of Britain's funniest writers, Alan Corrin. One thing is certain, wordplay in English is as old as English itself. Ray Page, Emeritus Professor of Anglo-Saxon Studies at Cambridge University. There are a number of riddles in Old English, um, and some of them have double meanings, and I suppose this double meaning is intended. Here's an example. I'll read it in the Old English first, and it's in verse. Bret lich hongath beweras theo, freon under sheata, for an is thirl, with steeth and hard, stay the haveth goodna, and I say esna his argan rail over cane haveth, willeth that coo the hole mid his hangalan hevde greaten, that he ever lang ere oft ye fulde. Now, a, a literal translation of this. There's a remarkable thing hanging by a man's thigh under the tunic of the chap. At the front of it, there's a hole. It is stiff and hard, and it has a splendid place. When this man lifts up his own coat, lifts it up over his knee, then it wants to visit that well-known hole with his hanging thing uh, that he often has done before. Now, what is, the, what is this being referred to here? Can you have a guess? <coughs> Some kind of tool, perhaps? Yes, indeed, yes, you're quite right. Can you be more precise? I couldn't, no, I couldn't begin to guess. Oh, it means a key, of course. A key? You, mean it meant a, you thought it meant something else, <laughs> too. <laughs> well, this is the Anglo-Saxon's idea of a joke, and I may say the original of this is in Exeter Cathedral Library. <laughs> In order to research his book on wordplay, Tony Ogard hunted through literature looking for references. Not surprisingly, he found them everywhere. Somebody counted up that Shakespeare used 3,000 puns in his plays, 
Um, and even at the most serious times, uh, as uh, Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet says, ask for me tomorrow and I shall be a grave man. And that's just before he's, just as he's dying. Uh, so Shakespeare shoved in these puns just at the worst moment when Macbeth was killing people or Hamlet was uh, <laughs> throwing his sword in all directions. And ever since, uh, uh, and even before Shakespeare, people were messing about with the language. You get references in Thackeray and Jane Austen, uh, two various word games in Pepys's diary, things like that. What, what did Pepys write about? Um, he was he said that they played uh, Crambo on a journey somewhere, and Crambo is a game where you you give somebody a word that rhymes with a word they've got to guess. It's a rather childish game, actually. But you say, "I'm thinking of a word for an animal that rhymes with log." And then they had to think of dog, you see. It's probably not as uh, basic as that when Peeps was playing it, but uh, that's the sort of game that they, they played to while away the long hours. And so it is continued into modern times. Perhaps the greatest addition of our own century to the art of wordplay has been the crossword puzzle. It was invented by an Englishman named Arthur Wynne. Wynne lived in New York, and so the very first crossword or word cross, as Wynne called it, appeared in the New York World newspaper on December 21, 1913. Wynne's crossword required the solver simply to supply a word that matched a brief definition. And for the most part in America, the crossword has never really much advanced from that. But in Britain, it became a much more challenging and cerebral enterprise, requiring mastery of cryptic clues, puns, anagrams, embedded words, lexical red herrings, and any number of other verbal traps. It requires a certain fiendish turn of mind to get really good at this, and no one has ever got better than a mild-mannered retired civil servant from Bromley in Kent named Roy Dean. In 1970, he solved a Times crossword in 3 minutes and 45 seconds, a feat that has never been bettered. Okay, Roy, this is today's Times crossword, number 20,615, for the record. I just wonder if you can um, guide me through a few of the clues, because I'm absolutely clueless at these. Well, um, this is Monday morning, so it should be the easiest one of the week. Crossword editor arranges that to give everyone a good start. Now, let me take one across. One across says, Dear me, it's set back all the players. Well... It's five letters. This is a five letters. Now, this is an example of word building. You have to think of... Uh, it's set back is obviously T-I, so it's going to end in T-I. What's an expression meaning dear me? Well, tut, for example. So you get the tut and the T-I making tutti, which is all the players in the orchestra. So, always in the clue there's a definition, and usually there's another way of arriving at the answer. I know that it's, it, there are some publications in America that run cryptic crosswords, and um, so clearly there are people who do it, but it's nothing like the, the, the national passion it is here. Is there something about the British character, you think, that accounts for this love of messing around with words? Well, it's partly the fact that the words are there to be messed around with. You've got so many words of, of meanings. I think the word set has something like 200 meanings. Every single part of speech is there in the word set, three letters. 
And because English is a melting pot, we're taking words from all languages. And you, you get a, um, a words that can be uh, uh, pronounced in different ways. The fact is that if you look at a, an English word, most words will break down into segments, or one word inside another. Take the word cabaret, for example. It's a, it's a bear inside cat. Of course it is. So uh, the crossword compiler looking like, like that would uh, say it uh, shows a, a nude in, indecent act. <laughs> act, again, being the anagram for cat. And the indecent so that, tells so that, you... So that it's an anagram. Mm. Or improper. Improper would be better. Nude and improper act seen here. Is it possible to, to play with words in the same way in other languages, as far as you know? I think it would be possible to play with language in, in the sound of sounds. You, you have certain sounds in, in French, for example, where you can pun in, in French on the sound, sound of words. But I don't really believe any other language is as flexible as English to allow this deconstruction of the words into sections and one word inside another and so on. And you couldn't, certainly couldn't do it in any of the sort of pictogram uh, uh, languages, uh, Japanese, Chinese, and so on. I doubt if you could do it in Russian. English is absolutely unique. Here's Mrs. Moss. <laughs> One of the more curiously challenging forms of wordplay is the palindrome. Words or sentences that read the same backward or forward, as in a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. Roy Dean, not satisfied with mere sentences, devised a palindromic poem of 72 lines, the wordplay equivalent of swimming the English Channel. Well, here's one uh, stanza of the poem. It has about 12 lines. To establish that it's a port, the first line is uh, uh, the name of the ship. Netadelia sailed at 10. Niagara, fall afar again. Rirak can snack cast Kera. A rare medoc, O oh, Demerara. Murder noses on red rum. Mum, it poses optimum. To predicate, go get a cider pot. Toll a renegade, bed the general lot to claret. Alas, it is a lateral cot. Now you might possibly dismiss this passion for messing about with words as a waste of time and an irrelevance. Not so. At Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire, during the Second World War, the very skills and lateral mental processes that made the British so adept at crosswords were put to use to break the famous German Enigma code. The success of the Bletchley Park codebreakers is thought to have shortened the war by at least two years. Today, Bletchley Park is in the process of being converted into a large-scale museum. It was there I met Tony Sale, its director. So, Bill, this is the uh, intercept, the mock-up of an intercept room here, and this is where the important German radio signals were listened to by people crouched over receivers trying to extract the very faint German signals from the ether. So, if we put this receiver on here... Ah, we've got some Morse code straight away. There we are. So this is what the operator would be listening to here, trying to write down this Morse code, which would have been the German signal, which, of course, they then had to decipher. But, of course, that signal actually came from, uh, from an Enigma machine, and, um, and here we have a German Enigma machine. And this is the machine which was generating the cipher which we had to try and break. 
and the total number of combinations on just this, on, on a three-wheel Enigma, and this is a four-wheel one, but just on a three-wheel Enigma, is 150 million, million, million. So how on earth did they manage it, and how long did it take them? Well, the amazing thing is, first of all, they managed it at all, but secondly, the, the, the Germans changed the code settings every night at midnight. So all bets off, start again, 150 million, million, million choices. And they reckoned they hadn't done very well in Bletchley Park if they hadn't found the key, amazingly, by three o'clock in the morning. Now, it's always seemed to me that one of the reasons that the British are so good at code-breaking is because they have this background and love for wordplay. Mm, absolutely. Is that too much of an assumption? Oh, no, that's, no I th- that's absolutely right. And, and I'm sure that was, that was all part of it. I mean, uh, some of the top people here were, 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 were exceptionally brilliant. Um, I mean, uh, Peter Hilton is reputed to be able to have done the Sunday Times crossword in his head without writing it down. Really? Uh, I mean, that's that sort of level of people. And he could hold um, a string of letters about sort of 20 or 30 long in his mind's eye and slip one set against another and look for correlations in his head. So that was the level of sort of people who, who were here. Um, but certainly um, wordplay and, uh, and, and, and that side of it was, was very, very important indeed. Now, I understand that crossword puzzles played a role in recruitment here. Oh, yes, indeed. The recruiters looked for people who were good at, at chess, at anagrams and crosswords. And one remarkable story is that one gentleman named Stanley Sedgwick, he was a managing clerk in a small firm in, in London, and it happened that the Daily Telegraph uh, ran a competition, a crossword competition, and Stanley was very good at crosswords. And this competition was for anybody who could complete a Daily Telegraph crossword in under 12 minutes. So Stanley went in for this competition, and he put the result in, or had the result authorised, and he was amazed to find, landing on his, uh, his doormat about a, a week or so later, a summons to go to somebody in the Foreign Office for an interview. And he went, and that's how he came to Bletchley Park. And he worked in MacVitie's section, which was um, breaking the German Met codes, and he worked there the whole of the war. English is a democratic language, and toying inventively with words is not limited to the more rarefied strata of the intellectual world. Indeed, one of the most delightful and enduring forms of wordplay emerged rather lower down the social scale. I refer to Cockney rhyming slang, parodied here by Ronnie Barker. As he staggered along, he saw there on the pavement a small brown Richard III. And he stared at it, lying there at his plates of meat. And he picked it up. And he put it on top of the wall where no one could step on it. And a rich four-by-two-ish merchant who witnessed the deed put his hand into his skyrocket and took out a lady Godiva and handed it to the man saying, I saw you pick up that Richard III. And that was a kindly act. Pray take this lady Godiva for your froth and bubble. And the man took it and went on his way rejoicing. And the small brown Richard III flew back to its nest. Lexicographer Jonathan Green has devoted years to investigating slang of all types for a soon-to-be-published dictionary. How long has rhyming slang been with us? 
It would appear to come on stream around the middle of the 19th century. It's sort of East End market tradesman language that emerged during that period. And it's gone on ever since. Right, and were they using it for their own amusement or, or as a kind of code? I think it was a kind of code. You see, there are other slangs at that period that have on the whole vanished. And backslang is one of them. And a, and a, and a refinement of that butcher's backslang. Which is? Um, in which you say bemal instead of lamb. Well, it's the, it's the, it's, I, I've actually heard it. I mean, once somebody used the, in a butcher's used the word, I think, something like phoebe instead of beef. And I was in absolute heaven for the whole day. <laughs> I wanted to say this man, thank you. But I think on the whole it's died, nonetheless. It's a rather old man. I was in the in the Imbrayer of Bar, and Ibrahim Jiraimer Eduru to write Lerup Jiraimer Ikerod Bar, and Itra. How many different um, slang, rhyming slang expressions did you come up with for your book? I, think, I mean, I've got around 1700, and I doubt for a second that that is comprehensive because they come and go, but that's the ones I've picked up. What are some of the more recent ones then? Um, there's the more recent ones, there's Ayrton. As in Ayrton Senna, the racing driver. Ayrton Senna means a tenner, means a ten-pound note. Um, we've got barley here, which is actually short for oats and barley. Oats and barley. It's a double one, this, because oats and barley rhymes with Charlie. Charlie means cocaine. So a line of barley is a line of, a line of cocaine. Bradley's, which comes from Brad Pitt, which rhymes with tit. So a nice pair of Bradleys. Um, <laughs> Howard's Way, which Howard it is, I wouldn't know. But Howard's, I presume it came from the Ian Forster book, but um, Howard's Way means gay. He's a bit of a Howard. And, and on it goes. I mean, there, there's a number of them. Leo Sayer. Leo Sayer say, means an all-day drinking session. And apparently Leo Sayer rhymes with all-dayer. So you're <laughs> off for a quick Leo, or a lengthy Leo, it would probably be. Right. Jonathan gave us many more examples, most of them, alas, unbroadcastable. A striking feature of English literature is the extent to which its leading writers have used humour, from Chaucer to Dickens and beyond. Nearly all the greatest names in the literary firmament have been distinguished in some measure by a mastery of wit and wordplay. There cannot be another country where the ability to make people laugh is quite so venerated. I put the matter to Alan Corrin. One of the things that most impressed me when I first came to Britain was the humour and there seemed to be this kind of humour that was based on wordplay that I had never really encountered in the same way in the States when I was growing up. Even movies like um, the Carry On films had... Most of the humour, a very large part of it, was based on puns and double entendres. Well, it was innuendo, and that's why English is so wonderfully smutty. Uh, Things in English somehow, and I've never been able to understand why, if they are put in a context where a nudge is expected, they will become funny, which is to say you can call a penis anything. You can say, oh, he's a man, he had an enormous Norman. (laughs) Oh, my God, have you seen the size of that Bernard? Or she had an amazing pair of, what shall we call them, mock dinners. And you think, why is it funny? But it actually is. And it sort of doesn't work in American. American doesn't have innuendo in quite the same way. A lot of that is to do with the tradition of demotic musical comedy. Uh, Shakespeare is shot through with it. You know, thou horse unzed, thou unnecessary letter, or, you know, thou Jacob. The Porter speech is a Max Miller routine. Launcelot Gobbo, Falstaff, Nim, Bardock, all these people are, are straight situation comedy, carry on, knockabout. And what about the other strand of, of English 
humor that, that struck me when I first came here, and it's the, this love of nonsense. I mean, things like Jabberwocky, and that, you know, it makes absolutely no sense, but is, is still amusing. That's just about the language being funny. Yeah. Um, but just... And the language being so funny that you can actually invent it, and it sounds like English. You can come up with chortle because he wants something um, that just happens to fit the grin, chuckle, all, all the rest. You make it up, it passes into the language. Brillig and slithy. All. English words are components of sounds which are themselves potentially very funny. And though we've already said that it's the richest language in the world, it's still not rich enough for the fantasists. They still carry on making up uh, stuff. They still come up with, uh, with Brillig and Jabberwocky. Twas Brillig. And the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths outgrabe. It's, it's very hard to think of a, of a figure in British English literature that isn't also funny. I mean, it seems it's to totally be... true, absolutely true, all the way through from the novels. I mean, starting with Chaucer and going through, if you think of the great heroes of Inglit... Uh, the, the writers who are uh, um, Richardson, Thackeray, Stern, amazing, Tristan Shandy, astonishing at that time to a, a huge comic novel. Um, and then on through, um, you know, through that 19th century, which is just comedy, while the Russians are producing Lemontyov and Dostoevsky uh, and Tolstoy, and the French are producing um, uh, Balzac, you know, Flaubert. What we're producing is Thomas Love Peacock, Jane Austen, Dickens, Thackeray. It's quite astonishing. It is a, it is a very rich comic tradition that really pours through 800 years of continuous comedy. What, what is it? I mean, is there something in the British character that encourages that kind of writing? I know that the British, not just the English, the British response to disorder is to survive it by laughing at it. It's Arthur Moe Kaiser. I mean, Punch's great strengths were the Depression, the First World War, the Second World War. Its sales were enormous. People turned to humour. Um, it is something to do with, the, with a stiff upper lip and a, a lower lip trembling with laughter simultaneously. There is another way to be funny in English, unwittingly. Here's Julie Walters reading the instructions on the back of an Italian food packet. Bring in cannelloni as they are. A stuffing macked with beef, eggs, papa or spices. All well amalgamated, add juicy. Besmear a backing pan and after dispose the cannelloni lightly distanced between them in an only couch. English, as we all know, has become a global language the most successful the world has ever known, spoken as a mother tongue by more than 350 million people, and by many more as a second tongue. But for that, we need another program. Or, as Roy Dean might say, a meager thorn romp.